Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and presented by me, your host, Chris Mayer. Our first story is an example of how a character choice can run away from you and suddenly you're holding on to the back of the roller coaster trying to keep it from flying off the rails. Nevertheless, I had fun with this one. Dark Dignum by Bernard Capes I'd not go higher, sir, said my landlady's father. I made out his warning through the shrill piping of the wind and stopped and took in the plunging seascape from where I stood. The boom of the waves came up from a vast distance beneath. Sky and the horizon of running water seemed hurrying upon us over the lip of the rearing cliff. It crumbles, he cried. It crumbles near the edge like a frosted mortar. I've seen a noble sheep, sir, eighty pound of mutton, browsing here one moment and seen it go down the next in a puff of white dust. Hark to that! Do you hear it? Through the tumult of the wind in that high place came a liquid, vibrant sound, like the muffled stroke of iron on an anvil. I thought it the gobble of water in clanging caves deep down below. It might be a bell, I said. The old man chuckled joyously. He was my cicerone for the nuns, had come out of his chair by the ingle nook to taste a little the salt of life. The northeaster flashed in the white cataracts of his eyes and woke a feeble activity in his scrannel limbs. When the wind blew loud, his daughter had told me, he was always restless, like an imprisoned seagull. He would be up and out. He would arise and flap his old draggled pinions as if the great air fanned an expiring spark into flame. It is a bell, he cried. The bell of old St. Dunstan's that was swallowed by the waters in the dark times. Ah, I said, that is the legend hereabouts. No legend, sir, no legend. Where be the tombstones of drowned mariners to prove it such? Not one to forty that they has in other seaboard parishes. For why? Dunstan bell sounds its warning, and not a craft will put out. There is the storm cone, I suggested. He did not hear me. He was punching with his staff at one of a number of little green mounds that lay about us. I could tell you a story of these, he said. Do you know where we stand? On the site of the old churchyard. Aye, sir, though it still bore the name of the new yard in my first memory of it. Is that so? And what is the story? He dwelt a minute, dense with introspection. Suddenly, he sat himself down upon a mossy bulge in the turf and waved me imperiously to a place beside him. The old order changeth, he said. The only lasting foundations of men's works shall be godliness and law-abiding. Long ago, they builded a new church, here high up on the cliffs where the waters could not reach. And, lo, the waters wrought beneath and sapped the foundations, and the church fell into the sea. So I understand, I said. The godless are fools, he chattered knowingly. Look here at these bents. Thirty of them, maybe. 
tombstones, sir, perished like man his works, and the decayed stumps of them coated with salt grass. He pointed to the ragged edge of the cliff a score paces away. They raised it out there, he said, and further, a temple of bonded stone. They thought to bribe the lords to a partnership in their corruption, and he answered by casting down the fair mansion into the waves. I said, who? Who, my friend? They that builded the church, he answered. Well, I said, it seems a certain foolishness to set the edifice so close to the margin. Again he chuckled. It was close, close, as you say, yet none so close as you might think nowadays. Time hath gnawed here like a rat on a cheese, but the foolishness appeared in setting the brave mansion between the winds and its own graveyard. Let the dead lie seawards, one had thought, and the church inland where we stand. So had the bell rung to this day, and only the charnel bones flaked piecemeal into the sea. Certainly to have done so would show the better providence. Sir, I said the foolishness appeared. But I tell you, there was foresight in the disposition, in neighboring the building to the cliff path. For so they could the easier enter unobserved, and store their kegs of Nantes brandy in the belly of the organ. They? Who were they? By who? But two-thirds of all Dunbarg. Smugglers? It was a nest of them, traffickers in the eternal fire of weekdays, and on the Sabbath, who was so sanctimonious? But honesty comes not from the washing like a clean shirt, nor can the piety of one day purge the evil of six. They built their church anigh the margin, for as much as it was handy, and that they thought, surely the Lord will not undermine his own. A rare community of blasphemers, for the parson that took his regular toll of the organ loft, to him that sounded the keys and pulled out the joyous stops as if they were so many spigots to what lay behind. Of when do you speak? I speak of nigh a century and a half ago. I speak of the time of the Seven Years' War and of Exciseman Jones, that twenty year after he were buried took his revenge on the cliffside of the man that done him to death. And who was that? They called him Dark Dignum, sir. A great feat smuggler, and as wicked as he was bold. Is your story about him? Aye, it is, and of my grandfather, that were a boy when they laid, and was glad to lay, the excisemen deep as they could dig, for the sight of his sooty face in his coffin was worse than a bad dream. Why was that? The old man edged closer to me and spoke in a sibilant voice. He were murdered, sir, foully and horribly. For all, they could never bring it home to the culprit. Will you tell me about it? He was nothing loath. The wind, the place of perished tombs, the very wild-blown locks of this withered Applejohn were eerie accompaniments to the tale he piped in my ear. When my grandfather were a boy, he said, there lighted in Dunberg Exciseman Jones. Perhaps the village had gained an ill reputation. Perhaps Exciseman Jones's predecessor had failed to secure the confidence of the executive. At any rate, the new man was little to the fancy of the village. He was a grim, sour-looking, brass-bound galoot, and incorruptible, which was the worst. The keg of brandy left on his doorstep on New Year's Eve had been better unspiled than run into the gutter 
for it led him somehow to the identification of the innocent that done it, and he had him by the heels in a twinkling. The squire snorted at the man, and the parson looked askance, but Dark Dignum, he swore he'd be even with him if he swung for it. They was hurt and surprised that that was the truth over the scrupulosity of certain people, and the feeling ran high against Exciseman Jones. At that time, Dark Dignum was a young man with a reputation above his years for profaneness and audacity. Ugly things were said about him, and amongst many wicked, he was feared for his wickedness. Exciseman Jones had his eye on him, and that was bad for Exciseman Jones. Now, one murk December night, Exciseman Jones staggered home with a bloody long slice down his scalp, and the red drip from it spotting the cobblestones. Someone fell on him from a window, said Dark Dignum a little later, as he were drinking himself horse in the black boy. Someone fell on him retributive, as you might call it. For would you believe it, the man had at the moment been threatening me. He did. He said, I know damn well about you, Dignum, and for all your damn ingenuity, I'll bring you with a crack to the ground yet. What had happened? Nobody knew, sir. But Exciseman Jones was in his bed for a fortnight, and when he got on his legs again, it was pretty evident there was a hate between the two men that only blood spilling could satisfy. So far as is known, they never spoke to one another again. They played their game of death in silence, the lawful cold and unfathomable, the unlawful swaggering and cruel, and twenty years separated the first move and the last. This were the first, sir, as Dark Dignum leaked it out long after in his cups. This were the first, and it brought Exciseman Jones to his grave on the cliff here. It were a deep, soft summer night and the young smuggler sat by himself in the long room of the black boy. Now, I tell you he were a fox-ship intriguer, grand, I should call him, in the aloneness of his villainy. He would play his dark games out of his own hand, and sure of all his wickedness, this game must have seemed the sum. I say he sat by himself, and I hear the listening ghost of him call me a liar, for there were another body present, though invisible to mortal eye. And that second party were Exciseman Jones, who was hidden up the chimney. How had he inveigled him there? Ah, they've met and worried that point out since. No other will ever know the truth this side of the grave. But reports come to be whispered, and reports said as how Dignam had made an appointment with a bodiless master of a smack as never floated to meet him in the black boy and arrange for to run the cargo as would never be shipped, and that somehow he managed to acquaint Exciseman Jones of this dissembling appointment and to secure his presence in Hyden to witness it. That's conjecture, for Dignam never let on so far. But what is known for certain is that Exciseman Jones, who were as daring and determined as his enemy, perhaps more so, for some reason was in the chimney, unto a grating in which he had managed to lower himself from the roof, and that he could, if given time, have scrambled up again with difficulty, but was debarred from going lower. And further, this is known that as Dignam sat on, pretending to yawn and hugging his black intent, a little soot plopped down the chimney and scattered on the coals of the laid fire beneath. 
At that, curse this waiting, said he. The room's as chill as a belfry. And he got to his feet with a secret grin and strolled to the hearthstone. I wonder, said he, would the landlord object if I venture upon a glint of fire for comfort's sake? And he pulled out his flint and steel, struck a spark, and with no more feeling than he'd express and lighten the pipe, set the flame to the sticks. The trapped rat above never stirred or give tongue. My God, what a man! Such a nature could afford to bide and bide. Ay, for twenty year, if need be. Dignam would have enjoyed the sound of a cry, but he never got it. He listened with the grin fixed on his face, and of a sudden he heard a scrambling struggle, like as a dog with the colic jumping at a wall. And presently, as the sticks blazed and the smoke rose denser, a thick coffin, as of a consumptive man under bedclothes. Still no cry, nor any appeal for mercy. No, not from the time he lit the fire, till a horrible rattle come down which was the last twitches of something that choked and died on the sooty grating above. When all was quiet, Dignum, he knocks with his foot on the floor and sits himself down before the hearth with a face like a pillow for innocence. I were chilled and lit it, says he to the landlord. You don't mind? Mind? Who would have ventured to cross dark Dignum's fancies? He gave a boisterous laugh and ordered in a double noggin of humming stuff. Here, he says, when it comes, is to the health of Exciseman Jones that swore to bring me to the ground. To the ground, mutters a thick voice from the chimney. My God, says the landlord, there is something up there. Something there was, and terrible to look upon when they brought it to light. The creature's struggles had ground the soot into its face, and its nails were black below the quick. Were those words the last of its death row, or an echo from beyond? Ah, we may question, but they were heard by two men. Dignam went free. What could they prove again him? Not that he knew there was aught in the chimney when he lit the fire. The other would scarcely have acquainted him of his plans. And Exasman Jones was hurried into his grave alongside the church up here. And therein he lay for twenty years. Despite that, not a twelvemonth after his coming, the sacrilegious house itself sunk roaring into the waters, for the Lord would have none of it, and baden his time struck through a fortnight of deluge and hurled church and cliff into ruin. But the yard remained, and the nast the seaward edge of it, Exasman Jones slept in his fearful winding sheet and bided his time. It came when my grandfather were a young man of thirty, and mighty close and confidential with dark dignum. God forgive him. Doubtless he were led away by the older smuggler that had a grace of villainy about him, tis said, and used Lord Chesterfield's printed letters for wadding to his bullets. By then he was a rampant, roaring devil, but for all his bold hands were stained with crime, the memory of Exasman Jones and of his promise dwelled with him and darkened him ever more and more and never left him, so those that knew him said. Now all these years the cliff edge again the graveyard, where it was broke off, was scabbing into the sea below. But still they used this way of ascent for their ungodly traffic, and over the ruin of the cliff they had drove a new path for to carry up their cakes. It was a cloudy night in March, with scud and a fitful moon, and there was a sloop in the oven, 
and under the shore a loaded boat that had just pulled in with muffled rowlocks. Out of this, Dark Dignam was the first to sling himself a brace of runlets, and my grandfather followed with two more. They made softly for the cliff path, began the ascent, was halfway up. Whizz! A stone of chalk went bad with a skull and slapped into the rubble below. Some more of St. Dunstan's gravel, cried Dignam, panting out a reckless laugh under his load, and on they went again. Whish! A bigger lump came like a thunderbolt, and the wind of it took the bloody smuggler's hat and sent it swooping into the darkness like a bird. Thunder, said Dignam, the cliff's breaking away. The words was hardly out of his mouth when there flew such a volley of chalk stones as made my grandfather, though none had touched him, fall upon the path where he stood and begin to gabble out what he could call to mind of the prayers for the dying. He was in the midst of it when he heard a scream come from his companion as froze the very marrow in his bones. He looked up, thinking his hour had come. My God, what a sight he saw! The moon had shone out of a sudden, and the light of it struck down on Dignum's face, and that was the color of dirty parchment. And he looked higher and gave a sort of sob. For there, sticking out of the cliffside, was half the body of Exciseman Jones, with its arms stretched abroad, and it was clawing out the lumps of chalk and hurling them down at Dignum. And even as he took this in through his terror, a great ball of white came hurtling and went full on to the man's face with a splash. And he was spun down into the deep gnat below, a nameless thing. The old creature came to a stop, his eyes glinting with a febrile excitement. And so, I said, Exciseman Jones was true to his word? The tension of memory was given, the spring slowly uncoiling itself. Aye he said doubtfully. The cliff had flaked away by degrees to his very grave. They found his skeleton sticking out of the chalk. His skeleton, said I, with the emphasis of disappointment. The first, sir, the first. Aye, his was the first. There been a many exposed since. The work of decay goes on, and the bones, they fall into the sea. Sometimes, sailing offshore, you may see a shank or an arm protruding like a pigeon's leg from a pie. But the wind or the weather takes it and it goes. There's more to follow yet. Look at them. Look at these bents. Every one a grave with a skeleton in it. The wear and tear from the edge will reach each one in turn, and then the last of the ungodly will have ceased from the earth. And what became of your grandfather? My grandfather? <laughs> there was something happened, made him renounce the devil. He died one of the elect. His youth were heedless and unregenerate, but tis said after he were turned thirty, he never smiled again. Oh, there was a reason. Did I ever tell you the story of Dark Dignam and Exciseman Jones? Last week, we got to meet Abby and Larry Clayton, two adorable, if a little headstrong, children. They were so excited to get that statue of the Virgin Mary for May Day. Larry proposed setting up an altar for it, and so, without further ado, setting up the altar.
A May Day Gift by Mary Catherine Crawley. Two. Oh, mother, cried Abby the day after the arrival of the unique May basket from Father Dominic. Now that we have such a lovely statue of the Blessed Virgin, don't you think we ought to make a regular altery? A what? exclaimed Mrs. Clayton, at a loss to understand what her little daughter could possibly mean. I told you that you might have an altar, dear, and you may arrange it whenever you please. No, but an altery, persisted Abby. The Tyrells have an altery in their house, and I wish we could have one too. Well, you must know what it is, mother. Just a little room fitted up like a chapel, and the family say their prayers there night and morning, and at other times if they wish. Oh, an oratory, observed Mrs. Clayton, trying to repress a smile. Perhaps that is the name, admitted Abby, a trifle disconcerted. Anyhow, can't we have one? Well, yes, said her mother, after a few moments' reflection. The small room next to the parlor might be arranged for that purpose. That would make a beautiful al- chapel, exclaimed Abby. She did not venture to attempt the long word again. I think I could get enough out of the carpet that was formerly on the parlor to cover the floor, mused Mrs. Clayton aloud. The square table, draped with muslin and lace, would make a pretty altar. Then, with the pictures of the Sacred Heart and the Bougereau Madonna to hang on the walls, and my prie-dieu, yes, Abby, I think we can manage it. Oh, how splendid, cried the little girl. When shall we begin to get it ready? Perhaps tomorrow, answered her mother. But I cannot promise to have the preparations completed at once. It will take some time to plan the carpet and have it put down. Abby was not only satisfied, but delighted. She told Larry the minute he came into the house. He had been over to the pond with his boat again. That will be grand, said he. When you get everything fixed, I'll bring you the little vase I got for Christmas and my prayer book and... Oh, yes, my rosary to put on the altar. And then, he went on, quite seriously, there's my catechism and the little chalk angel and... The little chalk angel, repeated Abby, scornfully. Why, that has lost its head. But it's a little chalk angel all the same, argued Larry. And if I find the head, it can be glued on. Oh, well, we don't want any trash like that on our altar, rejoined his sister. And the books and the rosary can be kept on the shelf in the corner. It would be nice to have the vase, though. Larry, who at first had been rather offended that his offerings were not appreciated, brightened up when he found he could at least furnish something to adorn the shrine. The following day was Saturday. There was, of course, no school, and Abby was free to help her mother to get the little room in order. She was impatient to begin, but alas for her plans. Around nine o'clock in the morning, Mrs. Clayton suddenly received word that Grandma was not feeling well and she at once prepared to visit the dear old lady. I may be away the greater part of the day, Delia, she said as she tied the strings of her bonnet, but I have given you all necessary directions, I think. Larry, do not go off with any of the boys, but you may play in the park as usual. And Abby, be sure that you do not keep Miss Remick waiting when she comes to give you your music lesson. But what about the altar, oh, oratory, I mean, asked Abby dejectedly. There is a piece of muslin in the linen press which you may take to cover the altar, said her mother, but do not attempt to arrange anything more. I will attend to the rest next week. I am sorry to disappoint you and Larry, but you see, I cannot help it. 
She hurried away, and the children ran up to the parlor, which was on the second story of the house, to take another look at their precious statue, which had been placed on the marble slab in front of the long mirrors. Then they went into the small room which was to be the oratory. The only furniture it contained was the square table which they had brought there the evening before. Abby got the muslin and began to drape the table to resemble an altar, Larry looking on admiringly, volunteering a suggestion now and then. She succeeded pretty well. Larry praised her efforts. He was prouder than ever of his sister, although, as he remarked, the corners would look a little bunchy and the cloth was put on just a teeny bit crooked. Presently, the little girl paused, took several pins out of her mouth, which seemed to be the most available pincushion, and glanced disconsolately at the pine boards of the floor. What is the use of fixing the altar before the floor is covered, she said. I am almost sure I could put down the carpet myself. Oh, no, you couldn't, said Larry. You'd be sure to hammer your fingers instead of the tacks. Girls always do. But if you get the carpet all spread out, I'll nail it down for you. The roll of carpet stood in the corner. It had been partially ripped apart, and there were yards and yards of it, for it had covered the parlor, which was a large room. Mrs. Clayton intended to have it made over for the dining room and estimated that there would be enough left for the oratory. She had not thought it necessary to explain these details to Abby, however. We'll do it, declared the latter. Mother said to wait, but I don't believe she'll care. Of course she won't, agreed Larry. Both the children felt that what they had decided upon was not exactly right, that it would be better to observe strictly their mother's instructions. But like many people who argue themselves into the delusion that what they want to do is the best thing to be done, Abby tried to compromise with the still small voice which warned her not to meddle by the retort, oh, it will spare mother the trouble and she'll be glad to have it finished. As for Larry, the opportunity to pound away with the hammer and to make as much noise as he pleased was a temptation hard to resist. Abby opened the roll. What did mother mean by saying she thought she could get enough out of this carpet to cover the floor, said the little girl with a laugh. She must have been very absent-minded, for there's lashins of it here, as Delia would say. Oh my, yes, lashins, echoed Larry. Abby was what is called a go-ahead young person. She was domestic in her tastes, and for her years, could make herself very useful about the house when she chose. Now, therefore, she had no diffidence about her ability to carry out her undertaking. And Larry, although he frequently reminded her that she did not know everything, had a flattering confidence in her capacity. I'll have it done in less than no time, she said, running to get her mother's large scissors. Click, click went the shears as she slashed into the carpet, taking off breath after breath, without attempting to match the pattern, and with little regard for the accuracy of measurement. Instead of laying it along the length of the room, she chose to put it crosswise, thus cutting it up into a number of short pieces. No matter about its not being sewed, she went on. You can nail it together, can't you, Larry? Oh, yes, said Larry. The more hammering, the better for him. He hunted up the hammer and two papers of tacks, and as fast as Abby cut, he nailed. Delia was unusually busy, for it was house-cleaning time, and she was getting the dining room ready for the new carpet. Therefore, although she heard the noise upstairs, she gave herself no concern about it, supposing that Larry was merely amusing himself, for he was continually tinkering at one thing or another. By and by, Larry remarked, Say, Abby, you've got two of these pieces too short. Abby went over and looked at them. Gracious, so I have, she said. Well, put them aside and I'll cut two more. 
Click went the scissors again, and the carpet was still further mutilated. Then, as a narrow strip was required, a breadth was slit down the center. Finally, the boards were covered. There, she cried triumphantly. It is all planned. Now I'll nail. Larry demurred at first, but Abby was imperious. Moreover, the constant friction of the handle of the hammer had raised a blister in the palm of his hand. Abby had an ugly red welt around her thumb, caused by the resistance of the scissors, for it had been very hard work to cut the heavy carpet. But she did not complain, for she felt that she was a martyr to industry. At last, the work was completed, and, flushed and tired, with her fingers bruised from frequent miscalculated blows from the hammer and her knuckles rubbed and tingling, she paused to admire the result of her toil. The carpeting was a curious piece of patchwork, certainly, but the children were delighted with their achievement. The lunch bell rang. Don't say anything about it to Delia, cautioned Abby. Larry agreed that it would be as well not to mention the subject. They did not delay long at the meal, but hastened back to their self-imposed task. Now let's hurry up and finish the altar, said Abby. Having completed the adornment of the table by throwing over the muslin a fine lace curtain from the linen press also, and decking it with some artificial flowers found in her mother's wardrobe, Abby brought the statue from the parlor and set it upon the shrine which she and Larry had taken so much trouble to prepare. Larry placed before the lovely image his little vase containing a small bunch of dandelions he had gathered in the yard. He was particularly fond of dandelions. Abby had nothing to offer but her May wreath, which she laid beside it. But the decorations appeared too scanty to satisfy her. I'll get the high pink vases from the parlor, said she. Yes, added Larry, and the candlesticks with the glass hanging all round them like a fringe that jingles when you touch them. The little girl brought the vases. Then she carried in the candelabra, the crystal pendants ringing as she walked in a way that delighted Larry. She knew perfectly well that she was never allowed to temper with the costly ornaments in the parlor, but she excused herself by the plea, I'm doing it for the Blessed Virgin. Larry also had a certain uneasiness about it, but he said to himself, Oh, it must be all right if Abby thinks so. She is a great deal older than I am and ought to know. The shrine was certainly elaborate now. The children were so engrossed with admiring it that they did not hear the house door open and close. A step in the hall, however, reminded the little girl of her music lesson. Gracious, that must be Miss Remick, she said in confusion. She quietly opened the door of the oratory, intending to peep into the parlor to see if the teacher was there. To her surprise, she encountered her mother, who had just come up the stairs. But Mrs. Clayton was much more astonished by the sight which greeted her eyes when she glanced into the oratory. Oh, Abby, she exclaimed in distress and annoyance. How could you be so disobedient? Oh, Larry, why did you help to do what you must have known I would not like? Larry grew very red in the face, looked down, and fumbled with one of the buttons of his jacket. But mother, began Abby, glibly, it was for the Blessed Virgin, you know. I was sure I could put down the carpet all right, and I thought you would be glad to be saved the trouble. Put it down all right, rejoined her mother. Why, you have ruined the carpet, Abby. Both children looked incredulous and astonished. Don't you see that you have cut it up so shockingly that it is entirely spoiled? What is left would have to be so pieced that I cannot possibly use it for the dining room, as I intended. Abby was mortified and abashed. Larry grew more and more uncomfortable. And then, the vases and candelabra, continued Mrs. Clayton. Have you not been forbidden to lift or move them, daughter? Yes, mother, 
acknowledged the little girl. But I thought you wouldn't mind when I wanted them for the altar. I didn't suppose you'd think anything you had was too good for the Blessed Virgin. Certainly not, was the reply. I had decided to place the candelabra on your little shrine. The pink vases are not suitable. But these ornaments are too heavy for you to carry. It was only a happy chance that you did not drop and break them. And then, the statue. Do you not remember that I would not permit you to move it yesterday? How would you have felt if it had slipped from your clasp and been dashed to pieces? A few tears trickled down Abby's cheeks. Larry blinked hard and stared at the wall. My dear children, that is not the way to honor our blessed mother, Mrs. Clayton went on to say. Do you think that she looked down with favor upon your work today? No. But if you had waited as I told you, if each of you had made a little altar for her in your heart and offered to her the beautiful flowers of patience and the votive lights of loving obedience, then indeed you would have won her blessing, and she would have most graciously accepted the homage of such a shrine. As it is, you see, you have very little, if anything, to offer her. Our final story this week comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne. You might know him from having to read The Scarlet Letter in school. This particular story is a little out of the norm for him, as his works generally fall into romanticism and don't include elements of the fantastic. It was also one of his best received. Here we have Dr. Heidegger's Experiment. Dr. Heidegger's Experiment by Nathaniel Hawthorne. That very singular man, old Dr. Heidegger, once invited four venerable friends to meet him in his study. There were three white-bearded gentlemen, Mr. Medbourne, Colonel Killigrew, and Mr. Gasquang, and a withered gentlewoman whose name was the Widow Wykerly. They were all melancholy old creatures who had been unfortunate in life and whose greatest misfortune it was that they were not long ago in their graves. Mr. Medbourne, in the vigor of his age, had been a prosperous merchant, but had lost his all by a frantic speculation and was no little better than a mendicant. Colonel Killigrew had wasted his best years and his health and substance in the pursuit of sinful pleasures, which had given birth to a brood of pains such as the gout and diverse other torments of soul and body. Mr. Gasquon was a ruined politician, a man of evil fame, or at least had been so, till time had buried him from the knowledge of the present generation and made him obscure instead of infamous. As for the widow Wykerly, tradition tells us that she was a great beauty in her day, but for a long while past she had lived in deep seclusion, on account of certain scandalous stories which had prejudiced the gentry of the town against her. It is a circumstance worth mentioning that each of these three old gentlemen, Mr. Medbourne, Colonel Killigrew, and Mr. Gasquon, were early lovers of the widow Wykerly, and had once been on the point of cutting each other's throats for her sake. And before proceeding further, I will merely hint that Dr. Heidegger and all his four guests were sometimes thought to be a little beside themselves, 
as is not unfrequently the case with old people when worried either by present troubles or woeful recollections. My dear friends, said Dr. Heidegger, motioning them to be seated, I am desirous of your assistance in one of those little experiments with which I amuse myself here in my study. If all stories were true, Dr. Heidegger's study must have been a very curious place. It was a dim, old-fashioned chamber, festooned with cobwebs and besprinkled with antique dust. Around the walls stood several oaken bookcases, the lower shelves of which were filled with rows of gigantic folios and black-letter quartos, and the upper with little parchment-covered duodecimos. Over the central bookcase was a bronze bust of Hippocrates, with which, according to some authorities, Dr. Heidegger was accustomed to hold consultations in all difficult cases of his practice. In the obscurest corner of the room stood a tall and narrow oaken closet with its door ajar, within which doubtfully appeared a skeleton. Between two of the bookcases hung a looking-glass, presenting its high and dusty plate within a tarnished gilt frame. Among many wonderful stories related of this mirror, it was fabled that the spirits of all the doctor's deceased patients dwelt within its verge, and would stare him in the face whenever he looked thitherward. The opposite side of the chamber was ornamented with the full-length portrait of a young lady, arrayed in the faded magnificence of silk, satin, and brocade, and with a visage as faded as her dress. Above half a century ago, Dr. Heidegger had been on the point of marriage with this young lady, but being affected with some slight disorder, she had swallowed one of her lover's prescriptions and died on the bridal evening. The greatest curiosity of the study remains to be mentioned. It was a ponderous folio volume, bound in black leather with massive silver clasps. There were no letters on the back, and nobody could tell the title of the book, but it was well known to be a book of magic. And once, when a chambermaid had lifted it, merely to brush away the dust, the skeleton had rattled in its closet, the picture of the young lady had stepped one foot upon the floor, and several ghastly faces had peeped forth from the mirror, while the brazen head of Hippocrates frowned and said, Forbear! Such was Dr. Heidegger's study. On the summer afternoon of our tale, a small round table, as black as ebony, stood in the center of the room sustaining a cut-glass vase of beautiful form and workmanship. The sunshine came through the window, between the heavy festoons of two faded damask curtains, and fell directly across this vase, so that a mild splendor was reflected from it on the ashen visages of the five old people who sat around. Four champagne glasses were also on the table. My dear old friends, repeated Dr. Heidegger, May I reckon on your aid in performing an exceedingly curious experiment? Now, Dr. Heidegger was a very strange old gentleman, whose eccentricity had become the nucleus for a thousand fantastic stories. Some of these fables, to my shame be it spoken, might possibly be traced back to mine own voracious self, and if any passages of the present tale should startle the reader's faith, I must be content to bear the stigma of a fiction-monger. When the doctor's forecasts heard him talk of his proposed experiment, they anticipated nothing more wonderful than the murder of a mouse in an air pump, or the examination of a cobweb by the microscope, or some similar nonsense with which he was constantly in the habit of pestering his intimates. But without waiting for a reply, Dr. Heidegger hobbled across the chamber and returned with the same ponderous folio, bound in black leather, which common report affirmed to be a book of magic. 
Undoing the silver clasps, he opened the volume, and took from among its black-letter pages a rose, or what was once a rose, though now the green leaves and crimson petals had assumed one brownish hue, and the ancient flower seemed ready to crumble to dust in the doctor's hands. This rose, said Dr. Heidegger with a sigh, this same withered and crumbling flower blossomed five and fifty years ago. It was given me by Sylvia Ward, whose portrait hangs yonder, and I meant to wear it in my bosom at our wedding. Five and fifty years it has been treasured between the leaves of this old volume. Now, would you deem it possible that this rose of half a century could ever bloom again? Nonsense, said the widow Wakerly, with a peevish toss of her head. You might as well ask whether an old woman's wrinkled face could ever bloom again. See, answered Dr. Heidegger. He uncovered the vase and threw the faded rose into the water which it contained. At first it lay lightly on the surface of the fluid, appearing to imbibe none of its moisture. Soon, however, a singular change began to be visible. The crushed and dried petals stirred and assumed a deepening tinge of crimson, as if the flower were reviving from a death-like slumber. The slender stalk and twigs of foliage became green, and there was the rose of half a century, looking as fresh as when Sylvia Ward had first given it to her lover. It was scarcely full-blown, for some of its delicate red leaves curled modestly around its moist bosom, within which two or three dewdrops were sparkling. That is certainly a very pretty deception, said the doctor's friends, careless, however, for they had witnessed greater miracles at a conjurer's show. Pray, how was it affected? Did you ever hear of the Fountain of Youth? asked Dr. Heidegger, which Ponce de Leon, the Spanish adventurer, went in search of two or three centuries ago. But did Ponce de Leon never find it? said the widow Wigerly. No, answered Dr. Heidegger for he never sought it in the right place. The famous fountain of youth, if I am rightly informed, is situated in the southern part of the Floridian Peninsula, not far from Lake Macaco. Its source is overshadowed by several magnolias, which, though numberless centuries old, have been kept as fresh as violets by the virtues of this wonderful water. An acquaintance of mine, knowing my curiosity in such matters, has sent me what you see in the vase. Ahem, said Colonel Killigrew, who believed not a word of the doctor's story. And what may be the effect of this fluid on the human frame? You shall judge for yourself, my dear Colonel, replied Dr. Heidegger. And all of you, my respected friends, are welcome to so much of this admirable fluid as may restore to you the bloom of youth. For my own part, having had much trouble in growing old, I am in no hurry to grow young again. With your permission, therefore, I will merely watch the progress of the experiment. While he spoke, Dr. Heidegger had been filling the four champagne glasses with the water of the Fountain of Youth. It was apparently impregnated with an effervescent gas, for little bubbles were continually ascending from the depths of the glasses and bursting in silvery spray at the surface. As the liquor diffused a pleasant perfume, the old people doubted not that it possessed cordial and comfortable properties. 
and though utter skeptics as to its rejuvenescent power, they were inclined to swallow it at once. But Dr. Heidegger besought them to stay a moment. Before you drink, my respectable old friends, said he, it would be well that with the experience of a lifetime to direct you, you should draw up a few general rules for your guidance in passing a second time through the perils of youth. Think what a sin and shame it would be if with your peculiar advantages you should not become patterns of virtue and wisdom to all the young people of the age. The doctor's four venerable friends made him no answer, except by a feeble and tremulous laugh. So very ridiculous was the idea that, knowing how closely repentance treads behind the steps of error, they should ever go astray again. Drink, then, said the doctor, bowing. I rejoice that I have so well selected the subjects of my experiment. With palsied hands, they raised the glasses to their lips. The liquor, if it really possessed such virtues as Dr. Heidegger imputed to it, could not have been bestowed on four human beings who needed it more woefully. They looked as if they had never known what youth or pleasure was, but had been the offspring of nature's dotage, and always the gray, decrepit, sapless, miserable creatures who now sat stooping round the doctor's table without life enough in their souls or bodies to be animated even by the prospect of growing young again. They drank off the water and replaced their glasses on the table. Assuredly, there was an almost immediate improvement in the aspect of the party, not unlike what might have been produced by a glass of generous wine, together with a sudden glow of cheerful sunshine brightening over all their visages at once. There was a healthful suffusion on their cheeks instead of the ashen hue that had made them look so corpse-like. They gazed at one another and fancied that some magic power had really begun to smooth away the deep and sad inscriptions which Father Time had been so long engraving on their brows. The widow Wykerly adjusted her cap, for she felt almost like a woman again. Give us more of this wondrous water, cried they eagerly. We are younger, but we are still too old. Quick, give us more. Patience, patience, quoth Dr. Heidegger who sat watching the experiment with philosophic coolness. You have been a long time growing old. Surely you might be content to grow young in half an hour. But the water is at your service. Again he filled their glasses with the liquor of youth, enough of which still remained in the vase to turn half the old people in the city to the age of their own grandchildren. While the bubbles were yet sparkling on the brim, the doctor's four guests snatched their glasses from the table and swallowed the contents at a single gulp. Was it delusion? Even while the draft was passing down their throats, it seemed to have wrought a change on their whole systems. Their eyes grew clear and bright. A dark shade deepened among their silvery locks. They sat round the table, three gentlemen of middle age and a woman hardly beyond her buxom prime. My dear widow, you are charming, cried Colonel Killigrew, whose eyes had been fixed upon her face while the shadows of age were flitting from it like darkness from the crimson daybreak. The fair widow knew of old that Colonel Killigrew's compliments were not always measured by sober truth, so she started up and ran to the mirror, still dreading that the ugly visage of an old woman would meet her gaze. Meanwhile, the three gentlemen behaved in such a manner as proved that the water of the fountain of youth possessed some intoxicating qualities. 
unless indeed their exhilaration of spirits were merely a lightsome dizziness caused by the sudden removal of the weight of years. Mr. Gasquan's mind seemed to run on political topics, but whether relating to the past, present, or future could not easily be determined, since the same ideas and phrases have been in vogue these fifty years. Now he rattled forth full-throated sentences about patriotism, national glory, and the people's rights. Now he muttered some perilous stuff or other in a sly and doubtful whisper, so cautiously that even his own conscience could scarcely catch the secret. And now again he spoke in measured accents and a deeply deferential tone, as if a royal ear were listening to his well-turned periods. Colonel Killigrew all this time had been trolling forth a jolly battle song and wringing his glass toward the booksome figure of the widow Wackerly. On the other side of the table, Mr. Medborn was involved in a calculation of dollars and cents, with which was strangely intermingled a project for supplying the East Indies with ice by harnessing a team of whales to the polar icebergs. As for the widow Wackerly, she stood before the mirror, curtsying and simpering to her own image, and greeting it as the friend whom she loved better than all the world beside. She thrust her face close to the glass to see whether some long-remembered wrinkle or crow's foot had indeed vanished. She examined whether the snow had so entirely melted from her hair that the venerable cap could be safely thrown aside. At last, turning briskly away, she came with a sort of dancing step to the table. My dear old doctor, cried she, pray favor me with another glass. Certainly, my dear madam, certainly, replied the complacent doctor. See, I have already filled the glasses. There, in fact, stood the four glasses, brimful of this wonderful water, the delicate spray of which, as it effervesced from the surface, resembled the tremulous glitter of diamonds. It was now so nearly sunset that the chamber had grown duskier than ever, but a mild and moonlike splendor gleamed from within the vase and rested alike on the four guests and on the doctor's venerable figure. He sat in a high-backed, elaborately carved oaken chair with a gray dignity of aspect that might have well befitted that very father time whose power had never been disputed save by this fortunate company. Even while quaffing the third draft of the Fountain of Youth, they were almost awed by the expression of his mysterious visage. But the next moment, the exhilarating gush of young life shot through their veins. They were now in the happy prime of youth. Age, with its miserable train of cares and sorrows and diseases, was remembered only as the trouble of a dream from which they had joyously awoke. The fresh gloss of the soul, so early lost, and without which the world's successive scenes had been but a gallery of faded pictures, again threw its enchantment over all their prospects. They felt like new created beings in a new created universe. We are young! We are young! they cried exultingly. Youth, like the extremity of age, had effaced the strongly marked characteristics of middle life and mutually assimilated them all. They were a group of merry youngsters, almost maddened with the exuberant frolicsomeness of their years. The most singular effect of their gaiety was an impulse to mock the infirmity and decrepitude of which they had so lately been the victims. They laughed loudly at their old-fashioned attire, the wide-skirted coats and flapped waistcoats of the young men, and the ancient cap and gown of the blooming girl. One limped across the floor like a gouty grandfather. One set a pair of spectacles astride of his nose and pretended to pore over the black-letter pages of the Book of Magic. A third seated himself in an armchair and strove to imitate the venerable dignity of Dr. Heidegger. 
Then all shouted mirthfully and leaped about the room. The widow Wykerly, if so fresh a damsel could be called a widow, tripped up to the doctor's chair with a mischievous merriment in her rosy face. Doctor, you dear old soul, cried she, get up and dance with me. And then the four young people laughed louder than ever to think what a queer figure the poor old doctor would cut. Pray excuse me, answered the doctor quietly. I am old and rheumatic, and my dancing days were over long ago. But either of these gay young gentlemen will be glad of so pretty a partner. Dance with me, Clara, cried Colonel Killigrew. She promised me her hand fifty years ago, exclaimed Mr. Medbourne. They all gathered round her. One caught both her hands in his passionate grasp, another threw his arm about her waist, the third buried his hand among the curls that clustered beneath the widow's cap. Blushing, panting, struggling, chiding, laughing, her warm breath fanning each of their faces by turns, she strove to disengage herself, yet still remained in their triple embrace. Never was there a livelier picture of youthful rivalship, with bewitching beauty for the prize. Yet by a strange deception, owing to the duskiness of the chamber and the antique dresses which they still wore, the tall mirror is said to have reflected the figures of the three old, grey, withered grandsires ridiculously contending for the skinny ugliness of a shriveled grandam. But they were young. Their burning passions proved them so. Inflamed to madness by the coquetry of the girl widow, who neither granted nor quite withheld her favors, the three rivals began to interchange threatening glances. Still keeping hold of the fair prize, they grappled fiercely at one another's throats. As they struggled to and fro, the table was overturned, and the vase dashed into a thousand fragments. The precious water of youth flowed in a bright stream across the floor, moistening the wings of a butterfly, which, grown old in the decline of summer, had alighted there to die. The insect fluttered lightly through the chamber and settled on the snowy head of Dr. Heidegger. "'Come, come, gentlemen! Come, Madam Wykerly!' exclaimed the doctor. "'I really must protest against this riot!' They stood still and shivered for it seemed as if grey time were calling them back from their sunny youth, far down into the chill and darksome vale of years. They looked at old Dr. Heidegger, who sat in his carved armchair, holding the rose of half a century which he had rescued from among the fragments of the shattered vase. At the motion of his hand, the rioters resumed their seats, the more readily because their violent exertions had wearied them, youthful though they were. My poor Sylvia's rose! ejaculated Dr. Heidegger, holding it in the light of the sunset clouds. It appears to be fading again. And so it was. Even while the party were looking at it, the flower continued to shrivel up till it became as dry and fragile as when the doctor had first thrown it into the vase. He shook off the few drops of moisture which clung to its petals. I love it as well thus as in its dewy freshness, observed he pressing the withered rose to his withered lips. While he spoke, the butterfly fluttered down from the doctor's snowy head and fell upon the floor. His guests shivered again. A strange dullness, whether of the body or spirit they could not tell, was creeping gradually over them all. They gazed at one another and fancied that each fleeting moment snatched away a charm and left a deepening furrow where none had been before. Was it an illusion? Had the changes of a lifetime been crowded into so brief a space, and were they now four aged people sitting with their old friend, Dr. Heidegger? 
are we grown old again so soon? cried they dolefully. In truth they had. The water of youth possessed merely a virtue more transient than that of wine. The delirium which it created had effervesced away. Yes, they were old again. With a shuddering impulse that showed her a woman still, the widow clasped her skinny hands over her face and wished that the coffin lid were over it, since it could be no longer beautiful. Yes, friends, ye are old again, said Dr. Heidegger. And lo, the water of youth is all lavished on the ground. Well, I bemoan it not, for if the fountain gushed at my doorstep, I would not stoop to bathe my lips in it. No, though its delirium were for years instead of moments, such is the lesson ye have taught me. But the doctor's four friends had taught no such lesson to themselves. They resolved forthwith to make a pilgrimage to Florida and quaff at morning, noon, and night from the fountain of youth. Next week is more May fun with Avon and a bit of whimsy. I didn't exactly do it on purpose, but now that we're heading into summer, we've got a lot of fun fantasy and sci-fi coming up. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.